is Co-Discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of Core Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. Today we are taking a look at innovations in evidence collection and what is being done to help detectives, witnesses and legal professionals in criminal cases. Do eyewitnesses from different cultures express their evidence in the same way? What is the influence of cross-cultural factors in criminal investigations? What can be done to turn around the extremely low rate of successfully prosecuted rape cases? And what can gaming technology bring to forensic archaeology? Listen on to find out. Our three guests today are ideally placed to tell us about the latest advances that are helping to refine criminal investigations. Their projects have all been supported by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme. Annelies Vredeveld is Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law at the VU University Amsterdam. She investigates psychology in the courtroom, from how eyewitnesses remember crimes to detecting lies in suspect statements. Welcome, Annelies. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Dante Abate is an associate researcher at the Cyprus Institute. His various areas of interest include the application of digital and non-destructive technologies for the identification and documentation of historic crime scenes. Hello, Dante. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. Benjamin Corgier is currently Research and Development Director at Axo Science, a biotech company specializing in molecular biology and innovative technologies for forensics. Welcome, Benjamin. Hi. Hello, everyone. Nice to be there. Nice to have you. Annalise, I'm going to turn to you first, if I may. The Beyond Weird Witnesses project set out to better understand the different ways people process and recount their memories. Annalise, you wanted to design and test evidence-based interview guidelines as well. Why is this work needed? And why the name Beyond Weird Witnesses? It's a good question. So why it is needed is that nowadays more and more witnesses are testifying in cross-cultural settings. Um, so you can think about international criminal trials, which often include uh, people from various countries around the world and then judges and lawyers from different countries. Uh, you can think about asylum interviews where people want to uh, have to flee their country. Um, but even in national police interviews, you could have cross-cultural differences from multicultural societies. So... It is needed because we know that cultural differences influence memory and communication, um, yet we know very little about what's happening there. Um, why is it called Beyond Weird Witnesses? Uh, weird in this case stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies. And research has shown that 96% of participants in uh, psychological studies are from these weird societies. Whereas only 12% of the world population um, qualifies as weird. So that's why what makes it weird. So about 88% of the world population, we actually know very little. Right. So there's been a real kind of disproportionate focus and a large number. Well, a large, as you just said, a large proportion of, of people who might be implicated in this kind of scenario. We haven't really understood much about what the differences are and, and how that manifests itself. Yes. Okay. Um, so what groups are you studying and, and why did you choose those particular groups? So in my project, I focus mostly on uh, African populations, sub-Saharan sub African populations. And the reason is, well, first of all, you have to choose, uh, you have to select a certain part of the world. And of course, Africa is huge and has so many cultures. But what made me choose it is that on the one hand, it's very underrepresented in psychological studies. So hardly any psychological research has been done in Africa. 
or with African people, whereas African countries are actually overrepresented or very much well represented in international tribunals or asylum seeker cases. So there's a mismatch there between what's been studied and what's actually relevant in practice. Mm-hmm. What's actually needed. And which communities did you look at most closely in Africa? So there's three sub-projects in my bigger project. One is on um, police interviews in South Africa. So we're looking at serious crime witnesses in South Africa. And I collected interviews there with the South African police, a collaboration uh, about 10 years ago already on a different project, actually. And then I figured, I found, I saw that a lot of these interviews were cross-cultural. 80% of them were with witnesses and interviewers from different culture within South Africa. Uh, For those of you who don't know, South Africa has 11 official languages and many different subgroups. And I noticed some cross-cultural communication issues and cultural differences there. So I wanted to study those more closely. Um, And then I added two other projects. One is on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where you see a lot of uh, witnesses and victims from Rwanda testifying to all kinds of international judges, mostly Western judges. Um, where you also have some anecdotes, some stories about where it might go wrong, but no systematic review, which is what we're doing. And the third group is um, looking at asylum seekers from Africa who come into Western countries and have to explain to a Western immigration official why they deserve asylum, what happened to them, why they're persecuted. So that's absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've actually found? Do you have any anecdotes for us where you can see that the cross-cultural impact is really coming into into play there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned uh, international tribunals and these anecdotes that are going on there. One anecdote is that uh, there was this witness in a trial who was describing how several people were murdered and it was very vivid descriptions of what happened. And at one point, the uh, lawyer asked something, the attorney, and the witness said, oh, yeah, um, I'm not sure because I ran away before the murder started. And then it appeared, it turned out, which nobody knew, that actually what all the descriptions were, what he had heard from his brother. But in his culture, describing your brother's memories is the same as describing your own memories. So the source of the information was completely misunderstood by the uh, lawyers and judges. That's a fantastic example. It's a very concrete example. Really very interesting. Any others that you can think of that spring to mind from what you've been coming across? Yeah, so another one is um, how trauma is expressed and experienced. So, of course, a lot of these witnesses have been traumatized by these horrible experiences. But in some cultures, so in, in most Western cultures, we, we would express trauma in psychological symptoms like depression or anxiety. Um, in a lot of other cultures, they would express these trauma, um, traumatic reactions in physical symptoms. So, for instance, pain in the stomach or being really dizzy. And if people don't recognize that as trauma, then they can also not accommodate for making sure that you don't re-traumatize victims. Right, absolutely. Okay, that's that's great. That's very interesting. And how do you hope that what you're discovering now will be used by people responsible for collecting evidence in the future? So I hope to create awareness for, for starters. So, of course, most people will already suspect that there are cultural differences, but exactly what those differences could look like. So, for instance not clearly stating the source or incorrectly stating the source of the information. Um, And if if investigators know about that, they can really probe for what is actually the source of that information. Or as if they're not aware of it, they they just assume that it is what they say. But also looking for these signs of trauma, for instance, and also learning how to deal with traumatized victims and witnesses. And 
for judges, it's really important that the evaluation of the testimony is also informed by cultural knowledge. So, for instance, if a witness keeps looking away, keeps avoiding their gaze, Western judges might interpret that as that they're lying, but in the other culture, that might be seen as a sign of respect. So you need to know that in order to actually appreciate and evaluate it properly. Absolutely, to determine what's going on. Thank you very much, Annalise. That was very beautifully explained. I appreciate it. It's very interesting work. Um, does anyone have any questions or observations? Yeah, Benjamin. Yes, I have a question for you, Annalise. Have you observed within the same cultures some variation in the way people report uh, what they saw? Is there a high variation inside the thing old culture? That's a very good question. So it actually starts with what do you mean by culture? This has been the big question in my research. So in the same culture, what is the same culture? If you say South Africa as a culture, then definitely, because there are so many different cultures within South Africa. So then, yes, there are so many differences as well. But even within what you might consider the same culture, for instance, Kosa culture, there are also individual differences, just like there are in, in our own culture. So I might be more likely to express something with a lot of confidence than someone else who's from my own culture. So individual differences are very relevant as well, but our project really focuses on trying to get more the average cultural differences um, between cultures. Yeah, the, the overarching stuff that really stands out. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Any other questions? Yes, Dante. Yeah, actually, I was wondering, uh, do you have an experience uh, uh, in collecting evidence in the war uh, scenarios? I mean, now war is a kind of hot topic in Europe, uh, unfortunately. And I was wondering if uh, witness uh, can be affected by the traumatic environment that's surrounding them. That's a very good question. So I've never been to war zone myself. Um, so I don't have experience with that. My PhD student actually did go to war zone recently and he went there to mostly to help the local authorities figure out how they should be interviewing witnesses and victims. And then there's two goals, of course. One is get the best, complete, accurate testimony. And the other is not re-traumatize victims and witnesses by the interview itself. And yes, yeah, so the environment is definitely very relevant, of course, because if you are in a still in a very uh, traumatized state, very emotional state, that is going to interfere with how you remember it. And it's going to hamper your reporting of what happened. Thank you very much, Annalise. Thank you. I'm going to turn now to Dante. Dante, the Dig for Archaeology project aimed to change the way in which buried and concealed evidence is analysed at crime scenes through new technologies such as green screens and latest virtual reality headsets, technology from gaming, engineering and computing. So I just want to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about how forensic archaeology is changing? Well, basically, archaeology is a traditional discipline. Years ago, archaeologists were going on site, uh, doing sketches, recording manually whatever was on site, ranging from stratigraphic excavation to artifacts to the context itself, the landscape. Today, archaeology and forensic archaeology are changing because technology is changing and is giving a big, uh, let's say, uh, support uh, to humanities. We can see new technologies uh, to do aerial surveys. We can see new technologies to do non-destructive analysis. So the trade-off uh, is that uh, new technologies are coming, but also new expertise are needed. And most of the time, uh, law enforcement uh, are lacking of these expertises uh, because it's not their job. So they are calling upon specialists like archaeologists that they are in the field and they don't know how to apply this. So in what sort of context would you apply the technologies that you use? How does this work in practice? 
Well, basically, during my Marie Curie Fellowship, uh, we were doing uh, extensive surveys uh, in uh, Holocaust sites, uh, so basically sites that were belonging to the Second World War, and uh, also on uh, most recent sites that uh, were connected to mass killing. As you may understand, these are quite sensitive sites, uh, and there is a lot of ethics uh, behind. So sometimes archaeologists are not even allowed to excavate because they do, they cannot disturb the remain. So the only approach that we it was possible to use this kind of digital technologies to try to enhance the knowledge. So uh, the two main domains that were applied were belonging to geophysics. So basically, it's applying techniques with physical properties to find evidence without disturbing the terrain. So amplify on that a little bit, please. What does that actually mean in practice? In what situations would you go out? What would you be looking for topographically? And then what would you use to try and understand further what's going on under the ground? Well, basically, we were looking for small mass graves to large mass graves. The main techniques that were going to be applied, uh, as I said, are geophysical techniques. And according with the feature that we were looking for, we were deciding which was the most suitable. In the large amount of site, we were applying a technique which is called ground penetrating radar. So basically, it's antenna that sends a signal into the ground and it record the reflections on the ground. So if there was a disturbance in the soil, these appear in our data. Of course, this is a non-destructive technique. So the ground truth will happen only when the real archaeologists they are going to do the excavation themselves. So it's a support to the authorities, but not is like the final word to the analysis. Yes, I understand. So it shows where it would be beneficial, if I can use that word, to go further and to dig further. And as you say, sometimes these sites are very, very sensitive and you do not want to be just excavating everywhere. So it's like a targeted attention. Correct. Basically, uh, basically our workflow was starting with the eyewitness collection. But when you are dealing with historical cases, you are dealing, of course, with individuals that are old uh, or they are second-hand memories. So let's say that they are not always able to pinpoint the exact location where something was happening. So thinking to go on an open field of a square kilometers and to excavate all of it is not feasible. So what we are going to do is try to go there with this kind of technologies, pinpoint specific areas. So in order to optimize the resources in terms of funds, of course, but also human resources, because we are targeting specific locations. Yeah, indeed. Okay. And can you tell me about the use of, not not in this context, but in any other context, um, the use of other technologies in your new field in this uh, area? Uh, yes. Basically, uh, we have developed uh, a, a, let's say a methodology to uh, document crime scene, in this case, using low-cost uh, sensors. So you, the law enforcement do not have to do huge uh, investment by using a 360 cameras that is able to collect with one single shot all that is around it. Uh, we were using these techniques to document uh, the, uh, to document crime scenes. Uh, so basically, if in a second period we were going there again and we were find inference, that means that the crime scene was contaminated and something was wrong, basically, because it was not uh, clean. Yeah. And if we think about gaming technologies, I noticed that you were mentioning green screens and great gaming technologies. How are these applied? As I said, uh, the traditional way of documenting a crime scene was a kind of manual one or with a photographic equipment. Uh, new devices uh, like laser scanners or uh, aerial scanners or aerial technology allow to create 
very photorealistic 3D models with a high accuracy of the scene, which of course can be visualized either offline or online using these goggles that uh, provide the users an immersive experience of the scene so they can understand exactly how the environment look like and how they are going to move look like, or they can be just guided to simulations. So basically is the authority that allows in the court to understand better how uh, scenes look like. Okay, so virtual reality. Yes, basically correct virtual reality. Yes. Yeah, no, 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 that's great. No, that's that's fascinating. Okay, and are you finding that legal professionals are taking up these ideas, or, or are you meeting much resistance? It's quite a disruptive idea. Uh, well, I think there are three main issues. The first one is that uh, not everywhere this kind of digital evidence are accepted in courts. So there, a legislator has to modify something to allow to have this kind of evidence uh, presented to be valid. The second uh, issue, which at the end of the day is uh, is always there, it's the lack of funds. Uh, basically, all these authorities do not have the resources to acquire this equipment and to do the uh, survey themselves. And the, the, other, the last one that I want to mention that uh, is a bit tricky to understand, but uh, sometimes when we went on site and we went with these machines, we were doing things, they were expecting to find something. But of course, this is not, sometimes it's not possible if the witness has been pointing us in the wrong directions, we will not find anything. So there was kind of high expectation when we were doing the work and when we were saying, listen, there is nothing here, there was kind of disappointment from Yeah, the- yeah, yeah. So they were expecting you to produce miracles. <laughs> You've got all these buttons and cameras and all this stuff. And now, now go find me something really spectacular. But if it's not there, it's not there. Yeah, it's correct. This is something that has... Is, is a kind of uh, philosophy there to get into it. Yeah, yeah. expectation management. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Do we have any questions at all for Dante? Yeah, please, Annalise. That's really interesting work. Um, so you mentioned quickly, oh, it's not always admissible in court. Why might it not be admissible in court? What are the arguments to not admit it? Well, uh, this machine, these devices, these techniques create digital replicas of the models. But uh, of course, uh, some of the machines are certified. So let's say they can give an accuracy uh, that is certified by manufacturer. Other techniques, they are not just a plug and play and you just press the button. So I have to follow a specific procedure. And if I do it correctly, I may get the result. If you do it another way, you may get another result. So there is not a standard at the moment for courts uh, to say that this digital evidence uh, can be accepted because uh, if someone else does it, it can get a, a different model with a different resolution with a different accuracy and this is not uh, I think feasible yet uh, to have a kind of standardized uh, procedure but it's a fantastic proof of concept and you can clearly see you know how it would be beneficial especially in complicated scenarios where it's difficult to explain to uh, to a jury for example what went on and then easier just to show them yeah it makes sense because i just show you the environment as long as you are not going to the millimeter details of the bullet in the wall that can be kind of tricky to say that can be shot according yeah. to my digital evidence yeah 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 no that's excellent thank you so much dante Super. I'm going to turn to Benjamin. Benjamin, your project Themis developed an on-scene sperm revealing technology that will disrupt the way crime scene investigation is conducted in cases of rape. I just said to Dante when he, you know, he's talking about management of expectations, you know, with all the equipment in the world, if it's not there, it's not there. But I realize actually when it comes to Themis, you can find stuff that other people have been missing. So DNA samples that can be used in evidence are obviously crucial to a successful prosecution. Can you give us a clear idea what that means in terms of the rates of conviction with current technology? 
Yes. The first important point to mention is that rape is the most underreported crime, 10% only. Part of the reason is that they are not treated correctly with strong evidences. It is then crucial to treat all reported sexual assault with great care in order to lead to prosecution. Unfortunately, this is not the case today, mostly due to poor techniques being used on the rape scene. A lot of cases are abandoned. This January uh, report in France states that 14% of women have already undergone an imposed sexual act. That's enormous. Globally, in Occidental countries, one rape out of 10 is reported, and only 45% of reported rapes are cleared. That's very interesting, Benjamin. Those statistics are terrible. Um, what is failing uh, rape victims currently now when it comes to evidence collection? Today, forensics uh, forces have many problems, many issues finding semen stains on the rape scenes. A rape scene is a, always a dirty environment with many kind of body fluids or dirt on the scene. And when you use the classical system, which is the, the blue UV light that you can see in the CSI TV show, uh, you, you actually in the real world, you see everything and nothing. You don't know where to take your sample. You don't know where is the semen potentially left by the assaulter. So it's really messy. You miss a lot of stains and you also have uh, wrong stains, I would say. Right. Excellent. I like that line about seeing all and nothing. Um, yeah, everything is illuminated and you don't know what you're targeting. So what's the difference with the technology that was developed and, and continued to be um, amplified by Themis, the project? So yeah, with, with Themis, we developed uh, an innovative solution, which is based on biochemistry and uh, our knowledge in molecular biology. So we developed a spray, which is called the STK spray for sperm tracker. And uh, it is really made to be simple to use. And uh, the CSI just have to mix a powder with water inside a sprayer and spray over the scene where uh, it wants to check if there is semen or not left. And how does that differ in terms of the image that they will get from the UV light? After that, they have to uh, illuminate the scene with the classical UV light. But here, what they will only see is bright and shiny uh, semen stain, if there is. Okay, oh, that's fantastic. So basically, it identifies what of all the mess that they can see in front of them actually is the thing they need to target. And, and does it pick up every single tiny trace or... Tell me more about the, the efficacy of the spray. Yes, we made a solution that was, is extremely specific uh, to human semen. And uh, you can find some semen that were just as big as one microliter drop, or even traces that were white, which is often the case when the assaulters don't want to leave any trace, you know. Ah, that's fascinating. So even if they try and clean up after themselves, your spray will still pick up. That's excellent, Benjamin. But are you meeting with any resistance? Are police forces welcoming the new processes, given the benefits that you've mentioned, presumably? Usually, we do not see any resistance from the end user. The end user are really uh, enthusiastic about uh, the product when they try it on real scenes. Uh, for instance, when we do a demonstration in the different police offices, we put 10 blind uh, little stain of semen in the room and we ask them to try to find them with their classical system and usually they found zero and uh, there's no trick because just after that we let them do with stk spray and usually they found all the all the stain and they're really impressed there is a clear woe effect from the end user yeah 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 so they realize that they missed some stains probably 
on some scenes. In the past. And uh, yeah. yes, they're really enthusiastic. The only resistance we are uh, dealing with is the administrative uh, resistance and the procedure change in the administration system. That must be quite frustrating for the, for the actual law enforcers on the ground who must be like, please, can we just get using this now? We need to make aware everyone in the system to, uh, to use our product. Yeah, that it's there. It's there, yeah. Yeah. And is it being used in Europe and outside Europe as well? I mean, where are you finding that there is uptake for this? Globally? or? Yes, we have uh, sent some samples everywhere in the world. And uh, as people are really enthusiastic, some of them have already tried it on the scene directly without any uh, authorization or legal authorization. Uh, we have an example. One of our sellers was in uh, Reno, Nevada last year. And uh, Reno Police District came to him and explained they had a scene where they couldn't find any semen and they should, they should find some because there were so many uh, complaints about uh, the, the person that was uh, researched. Um, so he gave them some uh, samples of this innovation, the, the STK spray, and they went back on the scene and uh, they found many, many stains uh, that they were not able to see uh, just before. So that was a, a great story. That's fantastic, Benjamin. Very, very good. And looking ahead, what new techniques are coming down the line, do you think, uh, to improve conviction rates? Well, I think the next disruptive tool for forensic would be a system or a chemical that would help you date the DNA that you find. Because today, DNA techniques, extraction techniques for molecular biology are really sensitive, and you can find DNA almost everywhere. It can stay on any surface for many decades if nothing is done. So the relevance of finding a profile and finding DNA on the crime scene is really, really crucial today. And if you could say this DNA has been there for one day, two days, a month or many years, it could make a real difference in the in the prosecution. Yeah, of course. I've got, I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but as soon as you say it, it's, it's totally apparent. It's not only what it is and where it is, but when. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's an important parameter, yeah. And does it degrade? I mean, you know, like we do carbon testing on, on artifacts. I mean, do, is, there, is there a degradation that one can measure? Can you set a time for the age? Not really today. The, the degradation of the DNA is not only proportional to the time spent. It's also proportional to the environment factors. Yeah. So uh, you cannot say clearly how old is the DNA trace you find. That's a fascinating area, though. That's clearly the next step, isn't it? Very good. Thank you so much. Any questions at all for Benjamin? Yeah, Annalise. Thanks for that. That was really interesting. And it's completely outside of my area of expertise. Um, but I do have a technical question. So I think... I've heard before that luminol, which is used to detect blood, um, actually then prevents you from testing the blood for DNA later. It sort of ruins the blood for later DNA analysis. Is that the case with the spray as well? Or can you still then do the full DNA analysis? Or am I completely wrong about luminol as well? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Benjamin? <laughs> just, no, just for your uh, knowledge, some luminol techniques are different or chemicals are different. And uh, one of the most famous products is made to be able to collect DNA and then go to the profiling. And for STK spray, for the product we developed, of course, we designed it to be compatible with all the biochemical identification uh, process after the, the sampling. It's compatible with extraction, with amplification and with profiling. And it's absolutely non-toxic for uh, the users or for the scene, I mean, 
I mean, it doesn't prevent you to detect other fluids with other techniques like blood, like saliva or, or anything else. So it doesn't interfere with any of the processes at any level? Yes. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for being with me today and, and uh, for telling us all about the, the latest discoveries in your fields. It's very interesting work. And in many cases, well, in all of your cases, you're really going to be making people's lives better. It sounds cliched, but it really is the case. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Abigail. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. If you've enjoyed this podcast, have a listen to earlier episodes on subjects as diverse as the latest trends in bio-inspired innovation to the struggle against antimicrobial resistance. Follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or find us on Anchor. Are you interested in what other EU-funded projects are doing in the area of detection, investigation and prosecution? The CORDIS website will give you an insight into the result of projects funded by the Horizon 2020 program that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domains and subjects, from robots to rabbits. There's something there for you. Maybe you're involved in a project or would like to apply for funding. Take a look at what others are doing in your domain. So come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. We're always happy to hear from you. Drop us a line, editorial at cordis.europa.eu. Until next time. <laughs>